Good morning, Redemption Church. Good to see everybody here this morning. If you would open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. If you uh, don't have a Bible, our ushers have one for you, so if you just lift up your hand and let them see you, uh, you'll get one from us. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Well, if you're joining us for the first time or you've been here before and this is, uh, you've been gone for a while, you are catching us in the middle of a very significant moment in our church and its history. Um, we are going through a Building a Stronger Church series, which uh, all of the congregations in Redemption are doing. Um, we are calling ours the essential elements of a stronger church. And so we have been, um, and, and this is no kidding, we've been praying for months uh, for this moment. And for the things that we're going to say, things that are very old but very profound. And so last week we started with prayer. I suppose if we were going to uh, start anywhere, that's, that's where we need to start. This whole thing is a dependency on God issue for us. And, and so we've been asking God to do things and change us and shape us and move us in ways that we don't do on our own. So uh, last week we talked about the power of, of prayer and, its de- and our dependency in it, that we need it. It changes us and it changes things. And so uh, last week we actually put some feet on the discussion of prayer, inviting you, the whole church here and in the conference center, to join us for a four-week prayer challenge, which starts this Wednesday. I know Paul mentioned so I'm going to jump on again. I don't know what you have to do to rearrange your calendar to join us, um, but I really believe God's going to honor uh, our prayer together. So we'd love to fill the conference center with people who are just banging on the door and asking God to, uh, to bless and do these things in us, these things we're calling the essential elements. So I invite you, seven to eight, we have child care things taken care of for you. If you just let us know that you're coming and how many kids, we'll take care of that, but I'd love for you to be there. Uh, today is uh, the second step in our essential elements discussion, and it's the Word of God. Let, let me put some uh, God's Word in this for us. So just, just listen to what is said. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Isaiah 55, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return uh, to it without watering the earth and making it bud, blood and, and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Joshua chapter 1, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it, then you will be prosperous and successful. Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Matthew 4, Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Hebrews 4, the writer says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. David, a man after God's own heart, when he began um, writing the Psalms, this is what he said in chapter 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Probably the most uh, familiar in Psalm 119, several, the, whole, the whole chapter regarding God's word, 
It says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. And your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We are um, talking about God's word. And I was convinced when I sat down to uh, study that I, I didn't have the burden to communicate to you its authority or its importance. Um, and that might be too general for you, and, and I'm okay with that. Some of you don't know about the Word of God, and I understand that in a context like this, there are many people. But for the most part, generally speaking, if I were to give you a little quiz and say, how important is the Word of God? Everyone would say, very, the most important. And it has authority for life and change. And, and so we don't have to re really wrestle with that, I think, in my mind this morning. But we do struggle with this. It's priority and it's power and it's provision. Because everything else lived out in our life is always about belie remembering, believing, and doing what we already know to do. And so sometimes life comes, you know, and sometimes circumstances or struggles or sin or whatever comes. And we go through very fast. We go very fast through a tri triage. We go, well, maybe it's not that important. Or maybe it's not that powerful. Or maybe it doesn't provide that much. And so we don't end up doing the very thing that we know. Possible? Yeah, I think so. And so why is it that we... Um, can't get our mind to tell our heart to love and long for the word more than it does. If I had this magic pixie dust and I offered it in the bookstore, go buy it. All you got to do is throw it on your head and suddenly you'll want more of the word of God. You'll read more of the word of God. You'll retain more of the word of God. Every one of us who call ourselves Christian would probably buy some of that pixie dust. Um, so uh, that's the struggle that we have. There is uh, somewhat like prayer, a challenge in spite of what we know it's hard for us to be consistent. And uh, there are lots of reasons. So to some of us who've been walking with Christ for a long, long time, it's too familiar. I mean, you know when you came to Christ, you know when the lights came on and you couldn't believe your sins could be forgiven and you looked around like, hey, does anybody else know this? Because this is amazing. And you're thrilled, you can't shut up, you gotta talk about it, you actually sing songs in worship because you can't believe it's true and it applies to you and, and then you get a decade or two or three into the thing and you go, yeah, I know. And suddenly, you would never say this, but you're in the Word of God wondering if it has anything to say anymore, anything new to say to you. Sometimes the Word of God is too unfamiliar. That's why we don't read it. And so, you know, you might be sitting here today and the Bible sits on your shelf because it's, it contains a lot of facts and figures and principles and doctrines and you have no idea how they go together. You don't know what the Old Testament is saying to the New Testament or how they go, what's the stories and who is this God? He seems crazy at one point and really nice at another. I don't know what to do with it. So I'm not close enough, nor do I understand enough. So it sits on my shelf because I don't think I have the skill to manage it. To some of us, um, the word of God is just too distant. You know what I mean by that? Um, we read it and we're, we're struggling to find out how it fits in my life. We wonder if it relates anymore. Like these are old stories. These are old truths. It's 2,000 years and it's got to catch up with the times and I don't, know how to, I don't know how to do that. There are too many cultural hurdles to, to have it deal with me precisely. In fact, if you want uh, just a, a little sampling, all you have to do is go to most churches around our valley and our country, and they spend all of their time trying to make the Word of God into a how-to manual as opposed to the Word of God. And so you'll understand about how to have great kids and a happy life and get your best life now and make money. And that's not what the Word of God is for, and yet that's what they think. I've got to address it, adjust it, fix it, tweak it, because it's lost its, its relatability. 
And then some, some people don't read the word because it just scares you to death. Because you're afraid if you read it, it's going to confront you. It's going to find you. It's going to sort it out. It's going to find your little particular weakness, and God's going to come running. And uh, he may even do something about it, right? Because it sees us. And it's kind of scary to be vulnerable and naked in front of the Word of God and have, it, have the Spirit of God just kind of sort you. And so some people don't want to go through that sorting, and they just say, well, it's easier for it to be over there, you know, like not in my life. And so there are challenges with, with the Word of God, and, and whatever the reason is, I believe, generally speaking, it's far too distant from us as Christians. It's far too... Um, away from us. In fact, if, I would love to just do a count of how many Bibles we have in our house. We've probably got a Bible for every day of the week, but we don't read one day of that week. So we agree with Scripture. We're too smart for that. We, we agree with it, but from a distance, you know, it's true. If I need it, I know where to break the glass and get it, but it needs to, it needs to stay there. Uh, preaching, teaching, leading, reading, believing has always been the centerpiece of East Valley Bible Church and now Redemption. It, it's whole, whole uh, existence, 22 years of Tom's teaching, um, has been the Word of God. And so we're in the process of trying to decide um, or communicate better um, who are we and where we're going as a church. And so we need to remember and remind ourselves that the Word of God, what it says to us is not just a part of our past, but a part of our current time and our future. So it's absolutely essential that we understand its power in our life. And, and you might think, well, gosh almighty, just, it's, it's, it's a no-brainer. I mean, it's just going to happen by osmosis. You're a word church, you're going to be a word church. And I don't think that's true. Um, there's too many examples, modern-day examples of, of people who used to be who aren't you can't, you can't read the, you know, the first four chapters of Revelation and not see Jesus assessing the seven churches and not see a problem. Of the seven churches, five have a word problem. They have a word issue. Somehow they've wandered. And when Jesus starts doing the assessment of the seven churches, Ephesus has abandoned its first love. How do you think that happens? When Pergamum believes wrong teaching, and Thyatira tolerated Jezebel, the false teacher, and Sardis had, to, had a good reputation but was really dead in heart, and Laodicea was known for being lukewarm. How do you think that happens, church? You, you think if they had a proximity to the Word of God, like a freshness with the Word of God, like they received when they came to life, do you think that they would be lukewarm or dead or following false teachers or wrong doctrine? No. So if, if Jesus is assessing these seven churches and comes to the conclusion that most of them wander, then we got to have a conversation about the Word of God and its permanency in, in our life and our church, right? Okay. This is where 2 Timothy 3 comes in. Paul is challenging a young pastor who's probably a little bit insecure, a little bit fragile, clearly timid in the role of being a pastor. And so what Paul says to Timothy is a really good way of understanding what a church should do because Paul is pushing into his life these essential things. So um, let's look at verse 14. We're going to build our case from there on about what, uh, what we are to be. Here's what Paul says to Timothy, but as for you, continue in. Now, you should underline that or write it down or remember it, whatever. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have, been, have uh, 
Firmly believe, knowing from whom you've learned it. Uh, that word continue in uh, or phrase means to remain or stay put, not leave. And you might go, well, why, why does he say continue? Well, back up to verse 13 and you'll see why. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Something happens in people, church. Something happens where staying put, remaining in, guarding the truth isn't cool anymore, and so they go on. Let's use words that don't normally come out so negative, but they progress. They advance. In almost any other context, those things would be considered good. But Paul seems to suggest here, don't advance when it comes to the word. Don't progress, don't get cool, don't get cute, don't do that stuff. Be a word church, be continue in the church, don't leave it, stay put. Because what they did by going on was going from bad to worse. Back up to chapter 4, or look ahead, verses 3 and 4 tells us um, some of the concerns here by this idea of progressing or advancing For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to truth and wandering off into myths. Do you understand why Paul tells Timothy, don't move? Don't ever move. Don't ever leave this place. Don't consider it cool or relevant or or progress to leave the truth behind. And if you are outlining this passage, and some people miss this, some people in this section of Scripture, the most popular verse is verse 16 that says, all Scripture is God-breathed, and they make that the essence of the the passage, but that's not it. This phrase, continue in, is Paul's point. If you want to outline it top to bottom, Paul is saying one thing. Timothy, don't move. When it comes to the Bible, don't quit. Don't ever, don't ever exchange it for something else. Don't ever wander away from it. Stay put here. Everything else that Paul gives Timothy is reasons why to stay there. Do you understand? So we got big picture, continuing, stay put here, don't leave, and here's why. And I think this is so cool for us as Redemption Gilbert in the midst of a transition from Tom in, in this pulpit. Is because you can measure um, or wonder or be concerned about the future, and I'm absolutely convinced I have nothing to offer, but God does, and he always has. And so um, we need to have a discussion as a family. We need to have a discussion about what we're going to continue in and what we're going to be committed to in spite of how uncomfortable it might make us. So uh, six reasons that Paul gives Timothy to stay put or continue in the word. First one is in verse 14. It's because of the character of those who taught us. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it. Um, Paul has in mind a particular group of people. Chapter 1, verse 5, if you'd look at it with me. Paul, uh, again, instructing Timothy, has this recollection. And he says in verse 5, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. Paul knows the character of the people that informed Timothy's faith. Do you understand? So mom and grandma played a huge role. They instructed you. Now, stop for a second and use our own examples. Um, we have pastors and preachers and teachers in redemption. We have small group leaders and, and we have uh, small group leaders and, and, and roundtable leaders and we have RC leaders and we have Sunday school teachers all over this place. Your parents, uh, your parents' parents, every one of us have people in our life 
past, present, and we will in the future have all these people in our life who are telling us of this faithful truth. Now, it's not the biggest argument Paul is making, but it's a very, very important one that he's making. The reason why you hang on is because of the character of the people who told it to you. I had somebody earlier talking about their son and the challenge of this passage with their wayward son. And, and they were motivated to continue in telling the truth, even though it's been said a thousand times, because it's the only truth that saves anybody. It's the only truth that changes anything. It brings about power in people's lives. And so, so that's Paul's instruction to Tim. Don't, don't leave. I know what your mom did. I know what your grandma did. So hold fast to the truth. John Piper says it this way. He says, the, the quality of the witness increases the credibility of the testimony. And I think that's true, right? And some of you can look back at times where you had people giving you the testimony and all you could do was shut it down, but you couldn't escape the reality of their life. You couldn't get away from it. And when God opened your eyes to believe it, you look back at it and go, those are a couple of the building blocks because it was in you, because you confessed it and you believed it and you lived it out and I had no way to go back and say, it's, it's, I can deny that. It was undeniable by your life. And so that, even though not the most powerful thing that Paul says to Timothy, it's one of the big ones. So here's the second reason why Paul gives to Timothy to continue in. In verse 15, and that is that they are holy writings reflecting a holy writer. He says, but as for you, verse 14, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred there's the word, sacred writings, which are now able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The word sacred, um, some of your versions might even say what the word means. It means holy. Paul says to Timothy, um, Timothy, stay put. Here's why. Seems like a no-brainer. They're holy. They're holy because of how they're connected to the, the author, and the author is pure and right and just and true and merciful and gracious, and he's, he's wrathful about sin, and he's just, and he's all these things. And so this God has revealed this will and this character in this thing called the Scriptures. And so, Timothy, don't wander because it's the only holy writing we have. It's, it's faithful, and, it, and it's true, just like the writer of it. Third reason why Paul gives to continue in it in verse 15 is because they have the, these sacred writings have the power to save sinners, which are able, do you see that, to make you wise for salvation. One of the uh, ways we come to trust the message is by the power that it has to change lives. I, um, Thursday is my day to really crank on studying. And I, I did a 13-hour tour of duty at McDonald's on Thursday. And my backside in those plastic chairs was dying, all right? So I was really tired. I got a lot done. I felt good about that. And I had a friend call me about a friend who, who needed or wanted someone to talk to. And I don't know how to classify where this guy is specifically as a church, but let's just say it has a branch of the Mormon church, and they teach the Book of Mormon, and... And he's a leader, teacher in this church. And yet, in his reading of the Bible, he knows it's wrong. He's reading it, and he's seeing his sin, and he's seeing grace alone. And it's blowing up religion. It's just blowing it all up. It's blowing up all the work and all the performance and everything else. No one says anything to him, but the word of God has the power to confront 
And so um, one of the reasons Paul gives to Timothy to stay put is because nothing else saves. Nothing else has the power to bring about transformation and salvation in a person's life. You see that phrase, are able? It just means powerful. It means powerful. Stay put, Tim, because the scriptures have the power to not just save, but he goes on to say, to make us wise. In other words, the powerful truth of God's word confronts the stupidity of men's hearts. So I know this is true of me, and and I know it's a description of every human heart, but we're all broken, self-inflicting, hard-hearted, stuck-on-stupid people. I hate to say it that way, but that's what it says. In fact, I think it's the only prerequisite for salvation for anybody. It's the number one rule of salvation. God saves stupid people. So if you're, if you're saved, welcome to the club. Um, but the Word of God does this thing. Get the picture. It handcuffs stupid people. And it transforms them or transports them to wisdom. Like, I don't know. I can't see. I can't understand. It makes no sense. The scriptures say to those who are perishing, it's foolishness. It looks like a joke until the Holy Spirit shows up through the power of the word and and handcuffs our stupidity and then transplants or transforms us into wise people, right? What else does that? Nothing does that but the word of God. The only power in all the universe that can take blind people and make them see, foolish people and make them think, hard people and make them soft, broken hearts and make them live you say it it's the word it's the word of God so I can just hear Timothy or Paul Timothy don't leave don't ever go away don't ever forsake it don't move on don't progress don't get smart don't get cute remain right here because it's the power of God unto salvation here's number four reasons a reason to continue in, verse 15, because it brings us to Jesus. These sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. Uh, Timothy was taught the Old Testament by his mother and his grandmother. And uh, some scholars, many scholars would say there are over 300 prophecies and, and, and pointers to the Messiah Redeemer, Jesus. Descriptions. And so I want you to get this. This is so cool. All he knows is what his mother and what his grandmother have taught him. And all those revelations about this Messiah Jesus, what he'd look like, what he'd act like, what he'd do and what he'd accomplish were all in his head with no place to go. And in Acts chapter 16, the Bible says that Timothy was introduced to the person of Jesus Christ, the name of Christ. And then all of the combination was unlocked. That somehow all those truths about a Messiah came true in this revelation of Jesus and he confessed and believed. Do you understand? He came to Christ through that truth. And it was the wisdom of the scripture that got him there. (laughs) And it's no different for us, right? Um, It's the scriptures. Wherever you are in your journey that God uses to confront and encourage and build up and bring out all the things that he wants in your life. So you know, it's like the gospel. I've never met anybody when you tell them about the gospel that they don't go, well, that's kind of cool. Whether they believe it or not, they love the fact that somebody would die for somebody. But the gospel is way more, way more deep and way more complex than just the good news story. The gospel starts with a bad news story. 
right? In fact, I spend most of my time, whenever I'm telling anybody about the good news, I spend most of my time telling them about the bad news. Because you wouldn't want the good news unless you understood how real the bad news is. And the bad news is we're far worse than we ever feared. We're broken and twisted and bent and stuck, like I said before, on stupid. We can't fix ourselves. We can't get out of our own way. We continue to add more and more of God's wrath and judgment on our lives because even our solutions to our problems are more of a problem. And it just gets worse and it gets worse and it's worse. You can't climb out. All you can do is dig deeper. That's the bad news. And right on the backside of understanding the horrible news that you're, you're broken and twisted and God sees it as sin and he's a wrathful, just God, he says, grace, by faith, through Jesus. Now, that's the best news anybody ever heard. That's the gospel. That's good news that Jesus saves people. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy. Timothy, there isn't any other power. You've you got a job to do. You're a pastor. You have something to say. But if you move away from the wonderful gospel that only Jesus saves sinners, there had to be a sacrifice, a propitiation, an atonement for sin. If you move away from that, nobody gets saved. You understand? You could talk about personal adjustments or self-growth or things like that. You can be a little bit better you, a little bit moral person, but you will end up spending eternity separated from God because you haven't placed your faith and trust in Jesus alone for your salvation. Without Christ, there isn't anybody who's born again or saved. Do you understand? Yeah. So you understand why Peter or Paul is just pushing on Timothy, don't move. Don't even wiggle a little bit. Because all heaven and hell is at stake here. It is so important. You can't believe. Just tweak it here. Twist it there. Adjust it here. Placate them there. Tickle their ears here. And they will believe something, not the gospel. They'll believe some news that sends them to hell forever. Don't mess with it. Hold on to the truth. There is no hope anywhere else. Here's the fifth thing that Paul gives reasons to continue in the truth. You see it in verse 16? It's because they're God-breathed. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It's one of the most important statements in all of the Bible. It means that God inspired these words. They are breathed out by God. So as to be his own very words for us. It blows my mind every time I think about it that the books that I have all over my house, all over my office, in my car, in my glove box, are the eternal words of God. But they are. And, and we got to take a, a second to just stop and, and make another little argument here. It's kind of a side note, but important to this whole thing. Because Peter, or Paul was instructing, or dealing with Timothy, saying, don't leave the truth. And we know what Timothy uh, grew up in was the Old Testament scriptures. So is it possible that what Paul is suggesting, that the New Testament aren't God-breathed? No. And so let me just make a little case for that. Because I think it's important to know that the Old and the New Testament are the very breath of God's will for us. And so I'm going to give you a couple of reasons. Uh, there are many reasons, but here's some that if you're just adding to your collection of understanding about why the, the New Testament has equal to the scriptures that Paul says to Timothy to continue in, 
The first one is this, that Jesus saw his own teachings on, on a par and equality with Scripture. Remember when Jesus came, the very first sermon he ever preached, he did a series of these statements. You've heard it said, but I tell you. Do you remember those? When he's talking about the law and the standards that existed from the Old Testament scriptures, Jesus took them and reestablished them and raised the bar. He, in his own character, in his own teaching, said, those are true and so much more in his teaching. He said this in John chapter 14, do not, do, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Jesus saw his own teaching in the same par with Scripture. Here's a second reason why the New Testament is God-breathed as well. Jesus prepared the disciples to speak divine authority for the church. In John 16, verse 13, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So disciples, apostles, when the Spirit comes, he will lead you, he will guide you in all truth. This is his message through you to the church. So Jesus was saying, listen, you're going to be on par with that divine authority too. Here's a third reason why the Testament is God's God breathe. The apostles claimed to be inspired by God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The apostle Paul knew that these words weren't his words. They were God's words. And so he tells us these didn't come from man's wisdom, came from God's wisdom. And, and then one last one, really important one. Peter himself referred to Paul's writings as Scripture. So you got one apostle looking at Paul and saying, well, those things are on par. So at second uh, Peter chapter chapter 3 it says this therefore beloved since you are waiting for these to be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. You see? And so several reasons why the New Testament is clearly God-breathed. So when uh, Paul says to Timothy, don't leave, don't add, don't subtract, stay put in, don't advance from this truth because it's God-breathed, every word of it is God's heart to man. You understand and do you believe that? And so that's his point here. I want you to hear um, Peter's perspective regarding this truth as well. It helps add to the, the argument, but he says in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, for no prophecy is ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter says God carried them, influenced their minds, spoke through them this truth, and they're God's words. Now, stop. Does that blow your mind? I need an answer, church. Is this like, oh, I guess, pretty cool. Think about it for a second. You have the very voice of God in your lap. You have access to this God through these scriptures. You have the mind of God for you and your life. You have the creator, redeemer revealed in these words. You have your future contained in its pages. You have hope here. You have life here. 
You have the description of what's wrong and how it got wrong, how to get it right, how to stay right, right here. Everything in the broken human heart that it ever needed to know about all the problems and solutions to the problems, you're holding in your lap. It, oh, it blows my mind. It, it does. So do you treasure it? Do you meditate on it? Do you memorize it? Do you read it? The will of God for us right here. Can I give you one last reason that Paul gives Timothy to stay put? Here's the pragmatic side of me because it's profitable. We're all said and done with the amazing truth that it's spoken by God for us. It's the revelation of God to us. There's this other part of it for us, and that is that it, it produces something. It is profitable. Look at verses 16 and 17. All scriptures, God is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteous, righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Um, so again, Paul to a young pastor, Tim, please don't ever stop. Please don't ever give in. Um, and then he makes this argument, and I'm, I, I title it this. He makes this argument of the teaching cycle. Do you want to know what the teaching cycle is? He says it's profitable for teaching, right, which is the absurdity of what we're doing right now. It's the stuff we put ourselves under a lot. You might watch a website or you might listen to a... a, a some kind of podcast, you might read books or articles or whatever, but for the most part, let's say we experience this together once a week, we sit under 45 minutes or 50 minutes um, of teaching every week. Maybe you're in a small group, you've got a small group leader re re you know, reading the scriptures to you. Maybe you have your own um, time with the word. Then it begins the process, the process called teaching cycle. So the absurdity of the Holy Spirit showing up in the words that he wrote through a common person can kind of filter out to the hundreds of people that are here and find a precise landing point. Like he can take this thing and weed it out so specifically that everyone in here can hear God speaking to your moment. That's amazing to me. That teaching is amazing. So, um, but then begins the process. Do you see the next word? This is the word we don't like, which is what wasn't in here. So it says the scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof. The word means to rebuke. Here's what it means. You live your life your way and nobody knows what you do. Teaching stops you. Teaching runs you into a brick wall called rebuke. God and his love in, in, the, in the mystery and the absurdity of preaching and teaching, he confronts us and our sins and our idols and our Jesus plus gospel, everything else out there we think we got to have. The gospel says stop, right? We're taught to quit, turn around, and that's the correction part, that God in his love doesn't just rebuke and leave us hanging. He corrects us. He straightens us and brings us back. Do you understand that? All of us who've ever sat in any teaching hear that and go, wow, that's me. Like he's got my diary or something. Well, that's God. And you feel the conviction of that moment, and, and you want to stop. You need to stop because that's what the Word of God does. It comes from his mouth to your heart, and he says, stop your sin. For reproof, for correction, 
from turning from your sin and your behaviors and your idols, from your dryness and your hardness and your extra gospel, from all those things, you turn from those things and look at what else he says. You go the other way and for training in righteousness. And, and by the way, this correction thing, I, I love it. The, the Greeks use the same phrase to describe picking up a fallen item and setting it back up in order. So you and I were perpetual knuckleheads, at least while I'm in that club, and, and, and I haven't seen you at the meetings, by the way. Um, but we're always, we're always falling over. And it's the word of God that stops me from falling over, stops me from continuing to fall over, and straightens me back up. Do you understand? That's the whole reproof and correction. And then there's the, the, tr- the training part. Do you see it at the end, that the man of God or the woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work? It's for a righteous living, church. It means complete, adequate, for walking out in the good works that God has called us to walk in. So do you see the power here? Do you see the progressive power in our lives? God in his love won't let you wander far or long. You get the word of God in your life, he'll come, and he'll come in a reproving way, a correcting way, and then ultimately, this amazing thing, he'll get good works out of us. It's amazing to me. Nothing works like the word. Nothing saves like the word. Nothing restores like the word. Nothing transforms like God's word. Nothing produces like God's word. Nothing. And so when Peter or Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, don't leave. Don't ever leave because anything else won't do this. And this is all that man needs. It's all that God provided. It's the only holy solution to this huge problem called sin. Anything else, anything else is playing games with people's lives. So you could go somewhere and somebody go, here's seven steps to be happy. And will you be happy? I don't know. Maybe for a short period of time. If you don't have to think about your sin or God's feeling about your sin, maybe for a short time you can live in a fantasy world and feel happy. But this is always true. Uh, 26 years ago, I had a student ministry crew at a little, well, not a little lake, a big lake in Wisconsin called Devil's Lake. I don't know if anybody's ever seen it, heard it. But it's kind of a weird lake. It's like a, it's like a canyon filled in with water. So it's like really, really deep, hundreds of feet deep. But big, huge walls of granite align the lake. So you kind of drive up to the edge of it, and it drops, you know, with all these trees and rocks down to the water, and the water's so dark and, and deep. Um, I took a, a group up there, and I, I used to like the hike. So 26 years ago, I, I was probably 25, probably ish. Um, And I saw this like outcropping of rock off the main cliff and I just jumped. I jumped off and I landed on the top of this rock. And uh, I didn't think very much back then. So I jumped. And then there was this little like bird's beak kind of outcropping. I thought, well, if I get to there, I can get to there. You know, I was like doing in my mind this math to get me somewhere on these rocks. I want to see the edge of this, this deal. And so I jumped over on this little bitty thing. It was probably that big. And I was holding my toes and grabbing the rock. And I thought, you know what I need now? I need to get down so I can get over. And so I took my feet out from under me and I sat on that thing. Now, if you ever climbed, you lose your feet, you're stuck. So I'm sitting on this little bitty thing with my arms on the rock, nobody around. <laughs> 60 feet off the ground. And I hung there for two hours, (laughs) listening for small animals and kids, if they're anywhere nearby. And I just hung there, like, what do I do? And I started to calculate all the costs, like, I could jump. 
I was kind of young. Maybe I'll, maybe, maybe I'll land on my feet. Maybe it won't hurt too bad. Don't want to land on my back. Don't wanna, it was all rocks. And I thought, well, I don't know. And so my mind, because of the reluctancy of all the fears that would happen, I just hung. Do you understand? I just hung there for two hours. And then a couple kids came by and we created like this human rope. And I hung on to one 13-year-old ankle and got out of there. I use that as an illustration of the, the tenacity with which we have to hang on to the forever eternal God-breathed scriptures. Because church, listen, if we don't hang on, we fall. We don't hang on, we get hurt. Although God's provided all the avenues for his version of success in our life, he's provided all the ways to know joy, peace, and, and permanency. He's provided life eternal. And when we use the word life, it's not about tomorrow, it's today. So we get all that stuff. But if you wander from this, and, and maybe, and I hope, I'm just preaching to the choir and everybody in here is just going, hey, amen, amen, amen. You're doing all that. That's great. But what if? What if we woke up tomorrow and said, hey, let's get cute with this? Because after all, they're getting tired of talking about stuff and then actually having to do it. They don't want to do it anymore. So let's say something that they'd like to come back and hear. And, and I hope you love to hear the word of God. It's the only thing that has any power. So I don't have any interest in saying anything else. Um, but we're going to remain here, church. By God's grace, we're not going to get cute, and we don't, we don't ha- I don't have cute in me. So it has a power, it has the authority, it has life, and so James said, and it, I, it confronts me too, uh, I'm not content with you being hearers, church. You need to be doers of the word. And so like everything else in our essential elements thing, we've been wrestling with ways to respond to these truths. And, and, and I knew when we were going to talk about this passage, it basically has its own so what's to it? So I don't want to work on that. I just want to provide you ways to get on. If, if in the beginning of this message you felt like any of those descriptions were you, the reason why you don't read, the reasons why you don't study, the reasons why you don't see success or faithfulness in it, the reason why you get uncomfortable with God in the scripture reading, whatever those things are, we want to provide for you um, ways to get in, ways to read and to know the word of God because that's where we're staying, Okay? Okay, as long as you smile, I'm all right. So, um, a couple of things, and you should have gotten this booklet last week, which reveals to you not only the essential elements, but our responses to them. And if you read ahead, you saw that our response to the Word of God is to encourage you to start like a, a journal process. Now, I know to each his own, and so this is not like a biblical mandate. God didn't say it, but I, I have used my own, I guess, example or failure in it um, as a description, a description of what I'm talking about. Journaling isn't like, uh, it's no more complicated than being quiet enough to listen because I believe the Holy Spirit teaches us. I think that's one of his main roles. And, and sometimes I think we get caught up with Bible studies and books and checking boxes and, and comparing ourselves to others and, and measuring how much we learn. God's not as interested in that as you think he is. He wants you. And so if we come to the word, just sit down and say, all right, God, teach me, and then read and see what he says. That's one. And like I told you before, it's kind of like, like a diamond, you know, that has an unlimited number of facets, and you just keep spinning it, and it keeps saying stuff. It will never contradict itself, and it will always be more beautiful every time you look at it, but you got to look at it, church. And so sometimes, and I'm going to give you some freedom in this, sometimes people just look at the word and go, well I, well, I better do this, I better hunker down, and I want to be like him and compare ourselves to each other, and we start reading plans that are undoable. 
well, today is the Old Testament, tomorrow is the New Testament, and it ain't going to happen. It's like me at the gym. I look at the gym and go, I remember what I used to be. It ain't going to happen. Not ever again. So can I give you some encouragement? Read something, know something, do something every day. Nobody cares how much. Nobody cares. Get close to God and watch him teach. Like, there are some verses in here that you could unpack forever. So don't, you don't have to get excited about quantity. Get in there. How many of you couldn't afford uh, 10 minutes or five minutes a day to read something, know something, and do something? You could. Now, I'm trying to give you training wheel stuff, and that would be really good. We also have, for those of you who... Um, Want to just be really disciplined with this and would like more encouragement. You're at a little bit deeper level. We've kind of collected a couple of reading plans for you. They're online. Um, they are the esvbible.org at uversion.com. There are reading plans available on these applications that you can just get on and use. Some of these applications read to you. <laughs> other, other than some guy with food showing up your house while he's doing it, I don't know how much easier it can get. So some of these apps, you just like version, you can hit the audio button and it just reads to you. So anything else, we might have a lazy problem, but um, the other thing we've put together is a one-month reading challenge. Like the prayer challenge, uh, to, to say I want to be a prayer, and everyone would go amen to that, but you can't get your mind around the le- rest of your life praying like that. And so we put together four weeks, four Wednesdays to pray together every Wednesday to really test God and see. And so I pray that you take, us adva- take advantage of that. But there's a reading challenge we're putting together starting in April. We, uh, our series ends March 3rd. We begin a three-week study on Habakkuk. We'll go through Easter and Good Friday, and then we begin Romans. Possibly, I don't know, a year and a half, two years of digging in that book, which is really exciting. So in April, we'd like to do this as a church. Like if everybody on board with this, uh, Monday through Thursday, four weeks, one chapter a day. Doable? So on Monday, that first Monday of April, we read Romans 1. Tuesday, we read Romans 2, and we see a chapter a day, and when we're done with April, we have accomplished 16 of those chapters in, in Romans, and we're, our guns are loaded, prepared for what God will do with Romans. Cool? And that's something that we can do, not to pat ourselves on the back, but to engage with the forever, eternal, God-breathed, holy word, okay? Um, and there's some tools. Some of, you, some of you know how to Bible study, and some of you know how to discern and search them, and, and that's good. You should use that. But some of you are looking at this going, oh, it looks like Mount Everest. I don't know what to do. Um, we've got some books like we are going to have every week for you. Last week we had Paul Miller's book on prayer still in the bookstore. A lot of you purchased that. Um, we have a couple of tools that are also in the bookstore today that help you in your Bible study. Rick Warren's Bible study methods. Um, that's in the bookstore today. A really simple um, outline of how to study the scriptures, and then Max Anders has a book called 30 Days to Understanding the Bible, all chewable, bite-sized portions to increase your understanding of how just to approach the Word of God, okay? Um, When James says, be a doer of the Word, and Paul says to Timothy, don't ever move from the Word, that means that the people of God should be in the Word, right? Right? 
And uh, I'm absolutely convinced the way this is being laid out by God and his sovereignty, we're going to pray for this <laughs> and pray that God does it, but we will not regret staying here. Amen? Let's pray together. God, I thank you that you're the one who has spoken and the words you speak bring life to dead people. And I thank you, God, that we sit here today not on our own abilities or, or anything that we could offer to you. We sit here as sinners saved because of the power in your word that you spoke life into us. Through the Holy Spirit, Jesus died for us and we walk free. God, thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.